Welcome to the Booktopia podcast, a podcast about books and the brilliant people who read them and write them. I'm Ben Hunter, Booktopia's fiction category manager. Nadi Simpson is a Uluru writer, musician, composer, educator from the freshwater plains of northwest New South Wales. Uh, she's a founding member of the Indigenous folk group Stiff Gins, uh, and Nadi has been performing nationally and internationally, critically acclaimed for over 20 years. Her debut novel, the Song of the Crocodile was a 2018 winner of the Black and Right Writing Fellowship. Nani is with me now. Skype. Nani, how are you doing? I'm really great. Thank you, Ben. I feel a little bit old, but that's cool because I probably am. <laughs> it's, a, it's a real honour to have you with us. I've, I've read this debut novel of yours and, man, it's a doozy. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, uh, it feels like a time ago now and it, it transformed into something different when other people... Um, are invited to insert themselves in it. So um, very kind words. Thank you. Uh, it's, it's really ambitious for a debut, I have to say. It's a multi-generational saga. It's a story of family, place, um, there's spiritual and mythological elements and themes of institutional racism, uh, in, you know, historical injustices uh, and intergenerational trauma. But shot through it all is these beautiful romances and, and stories about the magic of family. Uh, just reading this, I, I felt like you've you've signed up to a, a new gym membership and you've just marched straight over to the barbell <laughs> and said, give me, give me the biggest plates you got. I'm just going to lift them right now. Uh, what drove you to create this epic and awesome thing? Um, I, I guess I start with my dad is one of 11 and they, they, the first, half of his family born in Lightning Ridge, very near Queensland border, and then um, the younger ones were born in Walgett. So uh, and his parents are from that area. We've always been from there. And um, when when my family were in Walgett, they were living on the edge of town, as were a lot of Aboriginal families, um, out at a place called Monkeela Bend. So they were on the river and this you know, maybe kept at arm's length from um, the town itself. And they talk about this as being their golden years where they wanted for nothing and they had everything that they wanted. And I often think about that and think, yeah, but you fellas had nothing, you know. All that you had, you made out of other people's scraps. How come this is such a golden era? And I wanted to understand that so I tried to write it and go there in my mind because that that time of sort of having no resources but having the love was is part of my what I understand my place in the world so I really wanted to try and travel that's why I wrote it to go back and see a place that looked like Monkele Ben and to see and to smell and to hear and feel what it was that um shaped me before I was even thought of, you know. So that's really yeah. why I wrote it, to try and get, travel back in time. Oh, you certainly do a lot of time travelling, that's for certain. Uh, do you spend a lot of time, so you're a city girl, but you spend a lot of time out there on the freshwater plains during your youth. What was that like? Um, how was that an influence? Uh, did you did you soak up language and culture while you were there or is that something you had to kind of do the hard work as an adult to go and research that when yeah. you're older. I think um, when I think about 
uh, we always travel up there holiday time. Mm. And I sort of, I mean, when you're a kid, you don't really understand time. So there, in, there are chunks of my existence as being alongside the river or, you know, fishing or out on the opal fields or, uh, you know, it's sort of these things that are so vivid and moments that are almost the most clear to me um, are woven into my living, my lived experience. So I never... As a kid, I, I think we thought, right, right, we're going to Walgut for the holidays. But as I kind of got older and as I w- realised that the thing that I was good at was kind of relating creatively to people and ideas, um, as I started creating, I realised that, that I could be in those places even when I wasn't physically there. So that strengthened an understanding of um, place for me until you know when I started to think about it um, and try and understand it I realized that uh, time and mm, space uh, can conspire to get you places where you may not physically be and that's mm. how I came to understand or interact culturally that if all the rules that we know about being are a little bit hazy, um, there is that cultural world. We've got a word for that, you know, the dreaming. If, right. if we can connect to this sort of different place, you can swim in what you understand to be your cultural inheritance. That's kind of how I did it, if that makes any sense. Your dad's a, a one of 11, is that what you said? What kind yeah. of character is your dad? Well, he's he is the very middle. He's um, number five. Does that make him the middle? He's not. Pretty he's, much. He's, yeah, that's right. Second to middle. Second <laughs> to middle. Well, he's got five. He must be six. He's got five above and five. Five on the other side. All yeah. right. And um, they're all, you know, quite close in age. And it's actually been really interesting to understand dad as the middle child <laughs> of yeah, this right. kind of sprawling family because they, we have big personalities. In those 11, there are big personalities, there are quiet ones, there are thoughtful ones. And I really think that he is reflective of having these older, um, well-known brothers and sisters and having a lot of cheeky ones um, underneath him who kind of needed to make their own name. He's a, He's got a lot of both of those elements in him and um, that's been a really beautiful thing writing it is saying not that I wanted to really knuckle down who he was or what his life was but to write some kind of connection to my father before he was a father has been a really beautiful experience for me. Um, Much of the Billy Mill family saga, this novel, is about women who are on their own pretty much Mm. and and working to provide for themselves Mm. and the reader encounters these awesome acts of quiet defiance from a lot of them, uh, an incredible fortitude. And there's there's also a real spark of wit and, I would say, entrepreneurship yeah. of these women who were coming from nothing yeah. uh, and, and achieved a lot. Uh, yeah, they, these 
these campground ladies that run rings around the white colors <laughs> in town. Yeah. Um, were you inspired by your auntie though in that respect? Oh, I think the ladies, the women in the book are real kind of mashups of a lot of the women that I am related to and that I know. And I think it's really interesting actually hearing you um, say that because, uh, you know, in real life, in the real world, um, the blokes would be out working on the stations and the, and we, the women had to be resourceful mm. to keep families and big families going, you know. There was 11 kids in the family next door to Dad. So, you know, the women had to be really resourceful and often had to do that by themselves while the money was being made elsewhere and the men being elsewhere. And so a lot of the definitely... Um, a lot of the love and connection I know and see from all, all my um, all my relos and the people, the women that I come from, that was very uh, a very natural thing to me um, to kind of write because I knew how strong the love and the determination needed to be to kind of um, see your way through, you know, out out in that country. So. No one in particular, but lots of little elements of many of the women that I'm lucky to know. That's terrific. Another thing that really strikes me uh, right from the outset of this novel uh, is this kind of, this world you create, um, you call the town Darnmore, right? And, you know, I mentioned before the campground ladies, you know, in, in this world of yours, uh, it's like the cleavage between black and white is so great that it goes unspoken, you know, mm. rather than black fellow, white fellow. It's, mm. it's the, it's the townspeople and mm. the campground people. Mm. Um, is that kind of your way of illuminating a, a, a segregation or, or a marginalization that was just so fully realized at the time that even to acknowledge it directly could bring about further violence? Yeah. I mean, those sort of, uh, what I what I was interested in exploring, not what I wanted to achieve, but when I started writing, I, I sort of wanted to um, stumble through the idea, um, just how oh, the distance between people and how things left unsaid and unrecognised and unaccounted for. Mm actually um, don't just belong to that particular time and place. Those, All that stuff is carried on, whether you're Indigenous or not, you know. Um, and I think in by understanding um, the effect those things have in people's lives, one generation may not talk about things. The next generation may resent the fact that nobody talked about it and the generation after that may have to deal with the fallout of all that. That What I wanted to try and do was give people an understanding of contextualise difficulties that um, our communities have today and that that actually came from interactions with people and place that, you know, are still in living, living memory. So, I mean... It always catches up with you, eh? If you don't sort it out when it happens, it'll come back and bite you on the muru. That's that's how humanity works, not just blackfellas and whitefellas, eh? That's really well said. Um, 
without spoiling too much, these women uh, who are at the core of the novel, uh, they spend a lot of the time at work. You know, they're, they're mending and laundering clothing from the hospital and the motel and all the different homes and businesses around this town of Darnmore. Um, and they do it with their bare hands, you know, and they, mm-hmm. they can outdo the washing machines <laughs> that are being invented. There's that good. Um, but all through it, you know, the wages are determined uh, by someone else, whoever owns the kind of, whoever mm-hmm. has the purse strings. And it's, it just seems that the, the harder these characters work, the poorer they, they seem to yes. get. Yeah. Um, I was really moved by a moment where um, one of the children uh, describes seeing an auntie who does all the mending um, just once alone, uh, trying on, holding up one of these beautiful dresses and how, how sad that made that child feel to see that woman. That there was just a really deep and moving sight. Mm. I just want to get around this thing of this thing of wage theft, or the kind of long-term suffering from wage theft. Was that something that was in your family or in your experience? Yeah, I mean, um, I can't remember how many years ago. Might have been less than ten. It was a fair while ago. That in New South Wales they had a sort of a um, stolen wages repatriation scheme. Mm. Um, and so uh, it was a really odd kind of deal. I mean, people had oral stories in their family that, you know, grandmother or auntie or great-granny worked for years and was never paid. And you did, you know, we put in as a family to see, really to find out information. We kind of knew that my nan worked on certain stations Um we didn't know whether she had any money owing or but it was not it was not an unusual thing to expect that she didn't get paid as with many families in new south wales and we kind of submitted a, i don't know application real bureaucracy eh submitted an application really to i think for us as a family it was to repatriate a bit of knowledge about her before she was a mother and a grandmother um, we had snippets, and with those older fellas too, they don't like talking about the difficult times. So you often didn't have a lot of, you had moments in time that they were happy to talk about and chunks of life where you didn't know but you had a sense weren't as happy. And we put in for Nan and, you know, we got back all these documents from um, Aboriginal Affairs it was a handwritten, handwritten letter that my grandmother, Bertha Sands, had written because she hadn't been paid the sum of £10. And there was, you know, that process, there was, you know, I don't know, $4,000 that was owed to her after uh, 40 years or whatever, 50 years. And But I think of that letter and I think that is invaluable. That's that um, for us is far outweighs um it's giving back uh, uh, it's giving us a part of her yeah but it doesn't sort of um it doesn't wipe away the fact that she didn't get that money either you know so there's being happy for the fact that we can see her as a black woman standing up to the aboriginal protection board 
but her as a you know 19 year old still didn't get that money and what could that have done for her and her family she was one of 15 <laughs> so uh it's sort of you know sweet and sour when you delve back into the reality of life and try and back then and try and have something um empowering that you take from it was change slow to come to Volga? Was that the kind of town that would have the freedom rides come up there? Freedom rides went up there, and I, you know, Daddy said he was about fourteen, and um, he didn't go down because he thought there's going to be trouble with this. That and Charlie Perkins and the students took the kids into the pool, mm. and you know, I think a lot about I, you know, living in Sydney and thinking. What what did that mean that it needed? To, and he, he's ironed a man, Central Australian man. <laughs> so what about that for a story? Middle of, of Australia coming down to Sydney and going to Walgett. That's what it took for that town to sort of um, open up in, in the smallest way. Uh, so I think, I reckon, you know, it, we, it change is hard to come by in the in the middle of the city too. It's just that it's harder, uh, it's harder to recognise because it's so busy. I reckon people in general are very reluctant to examine themselves and uh, face difficulty wherever you are. Um, so Walgett in that way is no is no different. I reckon to a lot of other places. Can I ask you about the more magical elements of the novel. You know, throughout yeah. this, these generations of the Billy Mill family, there's ancestral spirits who yeah. are watching over everything that's going on and trying to guide their <laughs> descendants. How did you bring those elements to life? Uh, I, when I actually first started, because I have been lucky to sing, so I know, I know singing. I know a three-minute folk song. <laughs> hmm. And so I thought, how am I going to do this? What, what the heck? And it sort of goes, relates back, Ben, to when you said it's very ambitious. That's because I didn't know what I was doing, <laughs> which is probably a good thing. But when I thought, right, I'm going to write a long story, uh, how can I begin? And the character of Jackie Bird, who was a songman, sort of was the first fella that I wrote. And he is a, he sort of is uh He's otherworldly. Hey, he's sort of a star, but he's a bird. But he's he's a piece of hair all at the same time. And he right. is the one who brings songs. And I thought, all right, me and you, Jackie Bird, we're going to do this together. And that's really, uh, I wrote him as a character. And I thought, well, he needs a choir. <laughs> he needs people to boss around because he's a bossy sort of fella. Um, and I know a lot of uh, <laughs> a lot of musicians. And music teachers who are really good at what they do, they're really, really bossy because they demand the right performance out of you. And he was like that. So what did he need? He needed people who were going to listen, shut up and listen and do what they were told and um, allow him to lead. And that's where all these other um, characters came. And they were the fellas that, you know, either moved from the land up into the sky or were there themselves anyway and they were the catalyst. I mean, they sing the song. They they 
they bring the change that is needed below them. Um, so Jackie Bird was the fella that kicked it all off creatively. Yeah. I love it. And, yeah, when I, when I go through going to a novel like this that's not from my cultural perspective, yeah, I don't try and understand everything. Um, I just go into experience it, right? Um, well, one thing that really struck me, and you kind of got onto it right there, is is this totally different understanding of the stars and the sky, right? Um, just radically different to what mine is. Uh, it's pretty wild, right? <laughs> where, I mean, we have this beautiful concept because it's where freshwater river country and when the when we get big rain, usually from around Toowoomba way of Queensland comes down through the river system and it floods. Our word for the floodwaters is our very same word for the Milky Way. So we have we don't have the same kind of separation of land and sky, which means that, you know, it's almost interchangeable. What happens when you're from a mob that think the sky and the land are the same thing? <laughs> so there is a whole creative universe really that you can swim in literally and create from um and so and you know we have the way constellations or the seven sisters are people that walked the earth and ended up there and vice versa so it it also works that people up there can come down and have uh some kind of say in the way that lived lives um unfold and I mean that's something that I'm very grateful for as a creative person that I've got a lifetime to think about that and actually don't try and understand it like you're saying um, try and give it meaning to you in your own life at that time but mm. it's one of those things uh, that you know you can never fully understand I'm happy I'm happy not understanding beautiful things like that. And of music comes into your life. Are you from a family of entertainers? Oh well, uh, I think there's four four of Dad's brothers um, are, are still actually seventy seventy and fifty, and they're in a band. One word called Footful of Indies, <laughs> <laughs> and they can hear anything on the radio. Pick up one of what five instruments around and play it like that usually you know a lot of the old John Fogarty and Credence and although I've seen recently they do karaoke now and they've got <laughs> Pokemo as part, as part of the repertoire now so it's very interesting and living La Vida Loca that goes down well but they're natural performers and entertainers you know that's so that's dad's side and mum mum's family um Irish Catholic Kuji um uh, another household of women had this formal musical training at school, so piano, and mum played the oboe, I think, and then she walked into a post when she was <laughs> singing and playing and then gave it up. But there's, I've got <laughs> this really great mixture of oral performance and um, formal training, and I'm not that much chop at either, but I can have a go both I swim somewhere in the middle so I'm lucky to have always had sound and music um, and connection through those things as part of my life 
and Stiff Gins, I read, got together while you were all at TAFE in Darlington. Yes. What was the origin story? What were your first gigs like? We um, were all doing certificate two in contemporary music. Good. And I remember reading, like, the outcomes. After At the end of this course, you will be able to... Um, uh, set up your own PA and possibly play in an RSL. <laughs> That's for me. <laughs> um, and uh, I met my great friend, Kalina Briggs, who's Yorta Yorta Wiradjuri woman from, she's a river woman from down south, Narendra. And we were really the only girls left in the course. And the boys would jump on all the gear and we, me and Kalina they're looking at each other and thought, we should probably do something, let's write a song. And we wrote four songs and our first ever gigs, first sort of three months of gigs were for community organisations in Redfern. We played at Redfern Park and um, uh, Reconciliation Week, I remember, we thought, oh, this is pretty. It just kind of rolled on from there. It was we rolled out of Eora and rolled into community gigs and then rolled into folk festivals and it's just been a really beautiful, um, joyous musical journey. You've got beautiful harmonies. It's uh, critically acclaimed stuff. You've won awards. You've also toured extensively, right? So you've been around the country and you've been overseas. Does getting that distance between you and your origin um, and the dichotomy of, of the city and way out west, mm. does that distance give you perspective? Yeah. And I would also add there's another particular layer which has been difficult at times but very instructive in how I move in the world that um, I live and I work on Gadigal country, somebody else's traditional land. And this does something very important for me that, uh, and this is how I want to kind of always remind myself to be, it means that you need to privilege somebody else first, you know. So you need to, in the way I think, if I'm talking about culture business, I need to be very upfront that I am doing that on somebody else's land because it's as important as me saying how much I love Narran Lakes and Walgett and Lightning Ridge. That the fact that you can uh, allow that sort of space means you're somewhere, but you're not. Hmm. And you can transition between all those different realities. Um, and it gives you that perspective, you know. It's no good me talking about my book and big noting and blah, 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 because it was written or created mostly on Gadigal country, even though it speaks of somewhere else. And the, the, the uh, what's the word? The spirit of that place is helps me to talk about um, the story that I want to write. So having these things, I used to think I was on the outside of a lot of places, but now actually I realise that I can, instead of it being a problem, I can sort of like jump to all these different things, to all these different 
realms. And that reminds me to be respectful and humble and um, to always remember there's a big world of connection that's happening that you're not the centre of. <laughs> some wise words, and I've really uh, valued this time. This is really special, Nadi. Um, will you continue to write? Will you got some more books in you, or, or is it back straight into the music? What's the plan? Oh, uh, I mean, I've never had a plan, which is probably my downfall, <laughs> but probably the best thing for me. Um, uh, I really would love to. I'm gonna. I'm gonna. If I say it here, it means I have to. I'm gonna write again. Music has been this this beautiful um, thing for me that is always there. It always. I reckon I follow. What do I follow? I'm trying to think in my mind's eye of what it is. It's not a note. It's like the Pied Piper. It's a melody. I'm, I trail along at the back of music and it leads me to these places. Um, uh, writing sort of comes from a different place for me because you've got to be serious if you, about starting so to make sure that you finish. <laughs> And so that's something that I, um, I, it's a different commitment for me, and but one that I really love doing, and I want to do again. So how it all sort of jumbles out of me, and in what order, I'm not sure, but definitely I want to be creative in that way as much as I want to keep creative in uh, a musical way. Well, whatever you do, don't stop. Nadi, thanks for your time today. Thanks for being on the Booktopia podcast. Oh, it's a real pleasure. Thank you, Ben. Song of the Crocodile is published by Ashet Australia. You can get it from booktopia.com.au. Thank you for listening to the Booktopia podcast channel. Don't forget, you can subscribe to us on SoundCloud and iTunes for free and get access to hundreds of author discussions, book analysis pieces and more. Or, if your eyes need a workout, head to Booktopia TV on YouTube. Don't forget, for all books featured in this podcast, and for access to a whole bunch of other fun content on our blog, head to Booktopia, Australia's local bookstore, at booktopia.com.au.